Ben, we're on someone else's podcast. Let's not intrude too much. You've got 30 seconds to tell this wonderful listenership about the conference. Shoot. Oh, okay. Uh, Intelligent Speech is back. Again, it's a conference that brings together your favorite educational podcasters with their fans in an intense one-day online extravaganza. It's all happening online on June 25th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Between the three keynotes and the 42 individual sessions and roundtables, it's a three-ring circus of online content. Wow, what are they going to be speaking about? Our theme this year is crossings of one form or another. Very arty, very chic. Amazing. Where can people get tickets? Intelligent Speech Conference, all one word, dot com. And tickets are $30, but if you act now, you will get the early bird special of $20. And if you use this show's promo code, which hopefully the host will shortly provide, you will save an additional 10%. Wow! Cue rousing music. Hello everyone, Casting Through Ancient Greece will be speaking at the Intelligent Speech Conference this year on the 25th of June. I'll be presenting my talk around the theme of crossings in my presentation titled An Age of Change, the Greco-Persian War. For more details and to purchase tickets, head to www.intelligentspeechconference.com. If you use the code CASTING, you'll also receive a discount on your tickets. Anyway, I look forward to seeing those of you who can make it, but now let's get on with today's episode. Initially, the Athenians commanded autonomous allies and made their decisions in general congress. Their supremacy grew during the interval between the present war and the Persian Wars, through their military and political actions, against the barbarians, against their own allies in revolt, and against the Peloponnesians, who they encountered on various occasions. Thucydides. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 53, debut of the Delian League. The Greek world now had three major leagues with a focus on military support that were operating, with some cities being members of more than one. The oldest, the Peloponnesian League, had been created with Sparta at its head. It had been the solution to help solve Sparta's security concerns and allowed them to begin to consolidate themselves as the most powerful city-state on the Greek mainland. In general, Sparta held most of the cards with all members having to swear an individual alliance to them. The other states had no responsibility to one another. Further to this, Sparta would decide when the League would meet and were usually able to influence the smaller polis to ensure their agenda was met. The Peloponnesian League would also be primarily a defensive league reacting to events. The tribute system of the League would see it not being able to act in a dynamic way, since payments of men, resources or money would only be required when at war. No provision existed to fund the League during times of peace. The Hellenic League would then be formed to face a particular threat, the second Persian invasion of 480 BC. This would see a small collection of Greek city-states come together to defend Greek lands. These different city-states would all have varying interests within Greece and the Aegean. Once the immediate threat of the Persian invasion had been defeated, the different interests would begin to come to the forefront of the League. This would test the relationships that had been formed to unite against the outside threat. Now, the interests, especially those of Athens and Sparta, would see disagreements over the direction of policy in the Aegean. 
As we then saw last episode, Athens, at the insistence of the Eastern Greeks, would take command, though what they led would develop into something different. This would lead to the formation of yet another league, which would be known as the Delian League and would be focused on defending Greece from more Persian aggression. Though, unlike the Hellenic League, the Delian League would also look to the defence of the Ionians and other Eastern Greeks. Not only this, but it sought to protect their shared interests of all its members in the Eastern Aegean. So now that we've explored the formation of the Delian League, its objectives and how it was intended to function, we are now going to turn to the early years of the League and its operations in the Aegean. This will see us looking at the actions the League would take in securing its security and interest from Persian influence. This we will see in campaigns along the Thracian coast and actions towards other threats, such as piracy in the Aegean. While we will also see the League, or perhaps Athens, faced with how to deal with members who would look to leave the League. Though before we get started with the opening campaign of the Delian League, let's first turn to one of the Athenian generals who would lead these campaigns, and who we have yet to introduce ourselves properly to, Chimon. None of the previous successful naval commanders would be selected to lead the opening operations of the Delian League, but it would be Chimon, a relatively newcomer on the stage of Athenian politics. Chimon was the son of the famous Miltiades, who had been so influential at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. He spent much of his youth on the Chersonese, where his family had held control in the region, though it is assumed he would have come to Athens with his father when he fled the region due to Persian activities. Chimon was born around 510 BC, which would have made him around 20 years old at the time of the Battle of Marathon. This would have likely seen him as participating in the fighting there, though our sources are fairly quiet on his past this far back. Chimon is described as having grown into an attractive man, Plutarch telling us the poet Ion having related him as tall and athletic with long curly hair. We get some glimpses into Chimon's life before and during the Persian invasions and before he would come to prominence. As we have seen, Miltiades suffered a downfall after the first Persian invasion, when he would be engaged in other activities in the Aegean after Marathon. This would see him up on charges of corruption and would be given a jail sentence as well as a hefty fine to pay back to the state. Miltiades would end up dying in prison from wounds he had sustained during his Aegean venture. This would see his debt left unpaid and in Athens, debts were always passed down in the family. Now seeing Chimon inheriting it and responsible for paying it in full. Diodorus also indicates that he would repay some of his father's jail time. So Chimon would take on this debt in his early 20s, which was a considerable amount. The original fine was for 50 talents. One talent was about equivalent to paying a skilled worker for around nine years. Or would pay an entire trireme crew for a month. Though this burden would not ruin Chimon and his political future. Plutarch does record one explanation in how Chimon was able to rid himself of his debt quite quickly. After his father's death, he had been left in charge of raising his sister, or half-sister. Supposedly, he was then approached by an influential, and more importantly, wealthy Athenian noble, Callias, who offered to pay Chimon's debt if he could have his sister's hand in marriage, which was agreed to, supposedly by him and his sister. We then hear by the second Persian invasion, Chimon was quite wealthy, the debt not having bankrupted him, Plutarch's story providing a reasonable explanation. He was a part of the class that could afford to own and maintain horses, as he would be part of the cavalry. At this stage, he was also involved in politics and part of the opposing faction to Themistocles. We hear about these points in Plutarch's account, where he was willing to fall in line with Themistocles' naval policy, while also providing an example to others in the opposing factions. Plutarch writes, 
For when Themistocles, upon the Median invasion, advised the Athenians to forsake their city and their country, and to carry all their arms on shipboard, and fight the enemy by sea, in the Straits of Salamis, when all the people stood amazed at the confidence and rashness of his advice, Carmen was seen, the first of all men, passing with a cheerful countenance through the Ceramicus, on his way with his companions to the citadel, carrying a bridle in his hand to offer to the goddess, indicating that there was no need for horsemen now, but mariners. There, after he paid his devotion to the goddess, and offered up the bridle, he took down one of the bucklers that hung upon the walls of the temple, and went down to the port, by this example giving confidence to many of the citizens. We also receive some other anecdotal descriptions of his character through Plutarch, who was a very rich source of these on many ancient figures. He tells us that in his early adult life, he did not appear to be headed for any sort of greatness, and was known for his heavy drinking, while also being unrefined. Perhaps this unrefinedness would continue, as for when he grew a little older and became prominent, he would be a friendly figure towards the Spartans. His fellow Athenians would also comment on how he resembled a Spartan with his mannerisms and speech. He would also end up having twin boys, of whom one he would name Lacedaemonius, who when he grew up would also become an Athenian general. Though as Cimon came to adulthood, he would be described as being the superior of the past Athenian figures, such as his father, Miltiades, and the architect of the Athenian navy, Themistocles. Plutarch says, All of the other points of Cimon's character were noble and good. He was as daring as Miltiades, and not inferior to Themistocles in judgment, and was incomparably more just than either of them. Fully their equal in all military virtues, in the ordinary duties of a citizen at home, he was immeasurably their superior. But let's now turn to Cimon's first actions with the Delian League, as the solely elected general to command the fleet. One thing we do need to point out here, before continuing, is that these early years of campaigning, like much of the 50-year period, are basically given summary treatment by Thucydides. This gives an air of vagueness around some of the events, and can make establishing chronology difficult. Though we will work through what appears to be the most likely narrative of unfolding events, and where the general consensus tends to lay. Also, the events around Cimon's campaigning that Thucydides presents in his work were designed to highlight the growth of Athenian power. In this way, what he tells us seems to be a selection of highlights to illustrate this point. Therefore, we are not left with a comprehensive account of what was unfolding during the years of campaigning. Cimon had commanded the Athenian navy in 478 and into 477 BC, though this command was shared with Aristides, while Spartan was supposed to be in overall command of the Hellenic League. Now with the Delian League being founded in 477, Cimon, in his early 30s, would solely take command of the entire League's fleet, and would set off on its first campaigning season in 476. The main target for this campaign was the Thracian coastal city of Eon. As you may recall, Eon had been occupied by the Persians during their invasions in 480. It had served as the furthest west administrative centre for the invasion. With the Persian defeat, we would hear that the Thracians had made the Persian withdrawal very uncomfortable though it would appear certain cities would remain with Persian influence, with those along the coast appearing to be more easily supported. Eon would be one of these locations and an area of great interest to the Greeks, especially the Athenians. Eon was situated at the mouth of the Strymon River, with great access to silver mines and timber, two very sought-after resources. With Persian influence in the region, this would make it a prime target for the Delian League. The information we get on the siege of Eon would be very brief, 
though with bits and pieces coming from various sources. It appears when the Greeks landed in the region, a battle or series of battles on land took place against the Persian forces. After the Greeks were victorious in these battles, the Persians fell back into the city walls, where a siege then developed. With the city now under siege, the Delian League then began focusing on the local Thracians in the region who supplied the Persians in Eon. Through these actions, they drove many of the tribes out of their lands. This now allowed the League to focus on reducing the defenders at Eon. According to Pausanias, in his guide to Greece, Carmen would employ engineering measures to help bring the siege to an end. The river Strymon would be redirected so it would run into the city walls at Eon that were constructed of mud brick. Plutarch then records, Due to the hopeless position the Persian commanders found themselves in, they would then commit suicide by lighting themselves on fire, which would end up engulfing the city and consuming much of the potential booty within. When it comes to the episode on Eon with Thucydides, we are simply told, Under the command of Chimon, the son of Miltiades, they captured this place and made slaves of the inhabitants. We also hear, now with Eon under control and the land surrounding it devoid of the local Thracian tribes, the Athenians would colonise the area and take full advantage of the resources that could be tapped into. The next target we hear the Delian League would direct operations against was an island in the Aegean. This was called Skiros and located northeast if one were to set out from the centre of Euboea. It is unclear if the action against Skiros took place during the same season as that of Eon, though most seem to place this in the next year, 475 BC. Sieges were usually a time-consuming operation Plus, if the League had fought a series of battles against the Persian garrisons in the region and had cleared the surrounding lands of the Thracian tribes, one would think this would have occupied a number of months. By the time Eon had been secured, the weather was probably not favourable to set sail into the Aegean. This would have also allowed time for the Athenians to have established settlers in their area before leaving. The campaign against Skiros would see different motivations for it to be targeted by the Delian League. Remember, the League had been created to supposedly protect their interests in Greece and the eastern Aegean against Persian influence, though it appears that the island still posed some sort of threat to Greek trade moving through the area. We are told that the island was occupied by the group known as the Dolopian, who had their origins on the Greek mainland in a region between Thessaly and Illyria. Plutarch tells us that the Dolopian, who had settled on Skiros, had neglected agricultural activities and had relied on piracy for many generations. It would seem for the island to have become a target they must have been causing issues for Athenian trade or other League members who sailed through the region. Though it still can't be overlooked that these were still Greeks, and it is the first time we hear of the League apparently defending against Persian threats attacking other Greeks. Though another aspect that may have seen the attack on Skiros justified, in the minds of the League members anyway, is that during Xerxes' invasion, they had Medized and been included in the Persian forces as Thessaly submitted. Ultimately, Common would direct the navy at the island, where the League would take possession of it, expelling the pirates. If we are to believe Plutarch, it was the Pelasgian inhabitants of the island that sought Common's help in ridding themselves of the Dolopian pirates, offering their city to him if they came to their aid. On this matter, Thucydides is more blunt, telling us the island was enslaved and then colonised by the Athenians. Anger, sing goddess, the anger of Achilles, son of Peleus, that accursed anger, which brought the Greeks endless sufferings and sent the mighty souls of many warriors to Hades, leaving their bodies as carrion for the dogs and a feast for the birds, and Zeus's purpose was fulfilled. It all began when Agamemnon, 
Lord of Men, and Godlike Achilles, quarrelled and parted. These are the opening lines of one of the oldest surviving poems in the world, the Iliad. Over on Patreon, we are currently doing a three-part look at Homer and his works. So far, we have looked at the man himself and what Homeric poetry is. Now, our bonus episode on the Iliad has just been released, where we explore the story within, the themes used throughout, and even turn to some questions around historicity. To follow this up, we will then take his second great epic, The Odyssey, and give it much the same treatment. If you have been enjoying Casting Through Ancient Greece and have been wanting to support the series, please consider heading over to Patreon and checking out what's happening over there. To say thank you to everyone supporting the series there, I have been releasing monthly bonus episodes that have allowed me to go back over many aspects that we have covered in the series previously, provide some more depth in certain areas. Members on Patreon also enjoy such features as ad-free, early release series episodes, monthly video series updates, reference transcriptions of the episodes, and a personal forum where you can ask me questions that will be answered monthly via video. If this interests you, please consider heading over to the Casting Through Ancient Greece Patreon page. Otherwise, you can also find other ways to support the series over at castingthroughancientgreece.com by clicking on the Support the Series button. Some through financial support, others just through a little of your time. Thank you for listening and following along with the series. I am very appreciative of the support that the show has been receiving. I look forward to hopefully engaging with you over on Patreon. By this early stage in Cimon's military career, his popularity would have been steadily growing back in Athens due to his successes. Though his popularity would reach new heights, not through military conquests, but through a legendary figure of Athens' past. We have spoken in the past about the hero Theseus and his exploits told through myth, such as his slaying of the Minotaur in the labyrinth on the island of Crete. But Theseus was also a foundational member of Athens' past, as she developed. Whatever the Athenian views were, on his tales of adventure, they would take his role in the development of Athens very seriously. Thucydides records Theseus' role in the city's development. In Theseus, however, they had a king whose intelligence matched his power, and one of the chief features in his organisation of the country was to abolish the council chambers and the magistrates of the petty cities, and to merge them into a single council chamber and town hall of the present capital. Individuals might still enjoy their private property just as before, but they were henceforth compelled to have only one political centre, namely Athens, which thus counted all the inhabitants of Attica among her citizens, so that when Theseus died, he left a great state behind him. So to the Athenians, he had united all the small villages and settlements spread throughout Attica, from being individual political entities, to all being part of the same polis, Athens. All those who lived throughout these lands would now be seen as Athenian. Though, like many political figures in Athens' history, Theseus would eventually lose popularity in Athens, where he would go into exile on the island of Skyros. Plutarch then relates to us that he would meet his end there, either through treachery by the ruler of Skyros or by accident, being dashed upon the rocks below a cliff on the island. Carmen was fully aware of the tale, and he was also aware that Athens had been commanded by the oracle at Delphi to recover Theseus's remains, so they could be brought home to Athens and given the appropriate honours. Apparently before the campaigns of the Delian League, Skyros had been approached by Athens in regards to this matter. However, they had scrubbed from their memory this event, and refused the Athenians to conduct a search of their island. Perhaps this may have added to the reasons for Athens wanting to target Skyros during these campaigns. But now, with the Delian League having taken control of the island, 
Athens was in a position to mount a search for the bones of their long-lost hero founder, where Plutarch relates their discovery. But now, great inquiry being made, with some difficulty, he found out the tomb and carried the relics into his own galley, and with great pomp and show, brought them to Athens, 400 years, or thereabouts, after his expulsion. This act got Chimon great favour with the people. Chimon having brought back the remains of one of Athens' founding heroes, while also fulfilling the commands of the Delphic Oracle, and by extension, the god Apollo, saw his popularity in Athens raised to new heights. Whether the remains Chimon brought back to Athens was really that of Theseus is irrelevant. What mattered was that Athens had believed this to be true, and this belief was more powerful than the reality of his actions. It would serve to boost the feeling of pride of the Athenians of their city, while it would also serve to boost Chimon's career. This tending to other matters on Skiros by the Athenians and the pomp and fanfare that would develop back in Athens wouldn't see the end of campaigning. The Delian League would continue operations in their gene in what appears to be perhaps 474 BC. By this stage, it seems the Persian threat had died down somewhat, as we don't hear of any engagements against Persian-held areas for the next few years. Though, what would take place in 474 would be the first example of coercion by the Delian League against another Greek city. This time their eye was on a city closer to the Greek mainland, one of the islands of Euboea, the polis of Charistus. Again, we have very little detail on the events around the Delian League's actions here, but it seems the island may have been approached to become a member of the League, with it seeming they had refused. The Delian League approach here was that they were looking to gain members as part of the League to prevent Persian influence from entering into Greek cities that would work against interests of their League. Secondly, while the League provided protection throughout the Aegean, they also took the approach that there was going to be no free rides for anyone. Charistus was in a position that was strategically important for Athens to protect. In 490, during the first Persian invasion, the city had been sacked and proved to be a springboard, with its large bay, from where the Persians could land in Attica at Marathon. So for this reason, Athens would ensure this region of the Aegean would be well defended. In return, they took the view that Charistus needed to pay their fair share towards the League for this protection, whether they wanted it or not. The other members of the League do not seem to have raised any objections to this action. As for them, it was hardly fair that Charistus should benefit from the League's activities for free while they all provided money, ships and men. Though this would be an ominous sign for how the League would operate in the future. Again, the attack on Charistus is only given very limited treatment in Thucydides' account, with him only devoting one line to the action. Though, from what we have and the motivations around the city being targeted, we could perhaps draw some assumptions on some of the details. We hear that the rest of the cities on Euboea remain neutral in the conflict between the League and Charistus. This either indicating some of the other cities were in the process of becoming members of the Delian League, or others wanted to stay out of the League's radar and not be identified as freeloaders themselves. The conflict that did develop seems to have come down to a siege of the city itself. Whether there were any battles on the land or at sea, we're unsure. Ultimately, we hear that Charistus would surrender to the League, indicating they may have shut themselves within their walls. Though with no other support from their neighbours and no possibility for resupply, it would only be a matter of time before they had no other option but to surrender. This seems to be the League's approach. We don't hear of any storming of the city or the like. Rather, the city would remain intact and independent, meaning it wasn't colonised like the previous actions. Their surrender would lead to the Delian League enforcing conditions on Charistus, 
the major one seeming to be ensuring they had become members of the League. Later on, the city of Charistus would be listed on the tribute list as being a member. From this enforcement into the League, it was most likely that they had been set a tribute amount to be paid, rather than having to supply ships and men. This would be the usual approach in the future when cities were forced into membership. I just want to stop at this point in the narrative before continuing on with the final campaign we'll look at this episode, to point out these were not the only events taking place of importance. So far this episode may give the impression that there was campaign after campaign taking place each year, with nothing else of much note taking place. I've decided to follow the narrative of the initial actions of the Delian League, as it will come to highlight the evolution of the League and its priorities. Though back on the Greek mainland, further political developments were taking place, both around Athens and Sparta, that would shape how these two great city-states would interact with one another. During these stages, it would be the internal workings within their own cities and the regions around them that would see certain figures gain influence and factions gain power, that would drive these policies forward on how the cities would view one another. It would not only be the actions of the Delian League and their growth that would see tensions come to a head, but the political manoeuvrings and policies being developed back on the mainland would have just as much, if not more, impact on how events would unfold over the years. We need to keep in mind that the issues and the reasons for leading to the breakout of the Peloponnesian War are multifaceted and complex, and in this early stage, the information on events and developments that we have access to are brief at best. Though, don't worry, as we will be spending an episode in the near future, where we will look at the political developments taking place back in Greece over the same period that these initial actions of the Dillian League were taking place. We know Cimon wasn't on campaign all year every year over this time. He would be back in Athens throughout the campaigns. For him to raise to such political heights, he could ill afford to be absent from the politics of Athens for prolonged periods, though this would be another aspect that we will explore. Also, like I have pointed out, this narrative of campaigning that we are looking at served to summarise Thucydides' explanation of Athens' rise in power though the League would also be engaged in other operations and activities during these years. We just don't get a description of them for the most part, but we do get one glimpse into the fact that they were happening. This was in the events around the Spartan regent Pausanias' actions, which we covered in the episode Cracks Appear. Well, it seems the Delian League became involved in matters somewhere around 475 BC, where they sailed back for Byzantium. This was when Pausanias had returned back to the region after initially being recalled to Sparta. He was now in Byzantium on his own accord, and from what we are told, to further his position with Xerxes. It is unclear what transpired in Byzantium, but it almost seems as though he had become a sort of tyrant of the city. This coming across through the extravagant life he would live while there, while also having a bodyguard, before he was expelled from the city. Anyway, I just wanted to highlight the fact that there were other events taking place throughout this period, and a number of them will be revisited in more detail when looking at the political situation back in Greece. But let's now continue on with the last campaign that we'll look at this episode. This next campaign will now see the League engaging in an action against a city that would be a new development in their course forward. By this stage, the League had been in existence and campaigning for some six to seven years, with it now being 471 BC, though a date of 467 is also cited for this action. As we have seen, the only direct action against Persian influence up to this point was against the Thracian coastal city of Eon, where they still held influence. Since then, Thucydides shows us that they had been involved in actions primarily against other Greeks, though granted we aren't told of all the actions taking place in this time. 
Though we are given the impression that operations were taking place to secure the interests of the Athenians and the Delian League, no matter who it was against. This next action would take place against the island of Naxos, the home of the god of wine, amongst other things, Dionysius. Naxos was situated just south of Delos, home of the treasury, in the South Aegean. Naxos had been one of the original members of the Delian League. Being situated around midway in the Aegean, they had trade connections with both the Greek mainland, east to Anatolia, and through the Hellespont. In addition to this, Naxos suffered greatly at the hands of the Persians during their 490 campaign across the Aegean. If you recall, Aristagoras had proposed the capture of the island to the Persians, but failed in his attempt. For failing to submit to the Persian Empire, the island was devastated some nine years after, when the Persian fleet was making its way towards Athens. So as we can see, Naxos had a very good reason for wanting to be a part of the Delian League. They had commercial interests, as well as the Persian threat, still a very real living memory. However, even with these reasons, Naxos had come to the decision to leave the League, but all of our ancient sources remain quiet on the reason for this. Perhaps based off the information that we do have, Naxos had judged the threat the Persians pose as not so great anymore. The first year or two of campaigning seems to have been directed at Persian-controlled areas, but since then, we do not hear of any actions against the Persians. For Naxos, they may have come to the conclusion that the yearly outlay on maintaining their membership in the League no longer stacked up to the risk when it came to the Persian influence. They had probably spent up to eight years, depending the year we accept for this breakaway, having not witnessed or heard of any Persian activities affecting their way of life. As time passes, with no signs of a threat that was being paid for at public expense, more and more of the population would begin to question the need for continuing the payments. Though, as we saw in the case of Charistus, freeloading on the services the League was providing throughout the Aegean was not going to be tolerated. This had now gone a step further. Naxos had been a member, but now decided to leave the League. This would be the first time that we are made aware of a member attempting to leave and would mark another step in the development of the League, and as Thucydides saw it, the growth of Athenian power. The Delian League would end up making war on Naxos for the withdrawal, or as Athens saw it, the revolt from the League. This would end up eventuating in a siege of the island, which would result in Naxos having to submit to the terms given. From what seems likely, Naxos was forced back into providing tribute to the League. Though they had previously provided ships, now they were required to pay money instead. This perhaps made their support of the League a bit more reliable. Instead of having to rely on their forces, the League, or Athens, could use the money to support the League as they saw fit. How Athens saw to it that Naxos would abide by these new conditions and remain loyal to the League, we are unsure. Possibly hostages may have been taken, a popular practice in these times, when cities made treaties to ensure a side would uphold the deal. Perhaps, like the historian Donald Kagan puts forward, a garrison may have been installed on the island, or some of the land confiscated. Or maybe the threat of further military action from the Delian League was enough to ensure that they would continue their payments. Whatever the conditions placed on Naxos, what is clear is that the unanimous enthusiasm for the Delian League that had existed in 477 now seemed to be waning after a number of years of campaigning. Though, for the most part, it seems the majority of the members accepted and even supported the actions the League had taken in recent years. Though it is also possible, after witnessing the fate of other cities attempting to resist membership or attempting to leave, they may have been deterred in taking this approach themselves. These actions the League took against Charistus and Naxos, one can't help but think of the extortion tactics popular 
amongst gangs in their neighbourhoods in running protection rackets. The league, though, had to be maintained. If members could leave as they pleased, the burden on the remaining members would become overwhelming and risk the league dissolving. The picture we are given of the first years of the operations of the Delian League are presented by Thucydides to serve the purpose of explaining the growth of Athenian power. Though, if they are an accurate representation of the general actions that were occurring over these years, they also show us a gradual evolution of the League. We are initially given the impression that the League was brought together with great pressure from the Eastern Greeks looking for Athenian leadership. The basis of their formation would be around the idea of protecting Greek freedoms and in defending their interests in the face of Persian influence. As we saw, Eon highlighted this notion, with Persian garrisons being some of the first targets of the League's actions. There may well have been other actions, but Thucydides uses Eon to show us this early aspect of the League. Next, we are then shown a progression in the League's scope, with it targeting the Greek island of Skyros without any Persian influence. This, though, would serve as a pragmatic response to the piracy that was taking place in the region and Skyros being its base. This progression would then continue with the Greek city of Charistus on Euboea being laid siege to. Their crime, they had assisted the Persians during Xerxes' invasion, and they now looked to avoid membership in the League. They were in a strategically important position and benefited from the Delian League's activities. Athens couldn't allow this to serve as an example to other members. Ultimately, we are then brought to an actual Delian League member looking to withdraw from the League with operations then turning to enforce their membership. So although the League was in its inception designed to challenge Persian influence and protect Greek freedoms, it was also now having to expend its energy in policing its own regions and members. Membership in the League was also something that had to be protected and maintained. For members to leave the League on their own terms was also working against the interests of the Delian League. The League would justify their operations against other Greeks in this sense, as also protecting the collective interests of all its members. Otherwise, the League risks falling apart and unable to protect anyone. Though with the object of protecting Greek freedoms, how did this new dynamic of the Delian League interfere with the individual members' freedoms? After these episodes, Thucydides also tells us that Athenian treatment of member states began to change, with them now seeming to treat the contingents of the other member states as subjected peoples within the League. This almost appearing to show the same feelings they had towards the Spartans under Pausanias' command. Though, as we move forward, the Delian League would continue to campaign, although the picture we have been given so far is one of gradual change in operations of the Delian League. We will once again witness the League's devotion to safeguarding Greece and the Aegean from the Persian threat. Next episode, we will focus on the largest battle against the Persians since their invasion over 10 years earlier, the Battle of the Eurymedon River. This would also highlight that the Persian threat had not yet disappeared, as they had not dispensed with the idea of heading west once again. After that, we will then spend some time catching ourselves up on the political developments and other events that had been taking place back in Greece during the 470s and into the 460s. Before we then turn to other actions and dissatisfactions within the Delian League that would have wider consequences with relations throughout the Greek world, seeing the road to war becoming even shorter. To end today's episode, I will leave you what Thucydides says summarising the feeling of the Delian League members at this point, as well as how the Athenians now gathered more influence and power in this period. Of all the causes of defection that connected with the arrears of tribute and vessels, and with the failure of service, was the chief, for the Athenians were very severe and exacting, 
and made themselves offensive by applying the screw of necessity who were not used to and in fact not disposed for any continuous labour. In some other respects, the Athenians were not the old popular rulers they had been at first, and if they had more than their fair share of service, it was correspondingly easy for them to reduce any that tried to leave their confederacy. For this, the Allies had themselves to blame, the wish to get off service making most of them arrange to pay their share of the expense in money instead of ships, and so to avoid having to leave their homes. Thus while Athens was increasing her navy with the funds which they contributed, a revolt always found them without resources or experience for war. Thank you everyone for your continued support, and a big shout out to all those who have found some value in the series and have been supporting it on Patreon and other various ways. Your contribution has truly helped me grow the series. I would like to give a personal shout out to Akalia, Mike Swanson, and Harry Krishna Matar, who all recently signed up as supporters on Patreon. I greatly appreciate your decision to do so. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over at the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. I hope you can join me next time for episode 54, Clash at the Eurymedon.